All right. Welcome back to Rockford Reading. Rockford Reading Daily, a podcast series presented by the May 30th Alliance Podcast Network. We are currently reading Race Matters by Cornell West, the 25th anniversary edition. We're about halfway through the book. We're on the bottom of page 43 on chapter three. I believe this is chapter three, The Crisis of Black Leadership. Uh, what For anybody who may be tuning in to Rockford Reading Daily for the first time, what it is that we do is we read through a piece of literature. And as we're reading through the piece of literature, we uh, articulate how the issues being presented or the ideolo- ideology being presented or the facts being presented uh, interconnect or correlate or cross-reference with uh, issues of police terrorism, mass incarceration, and racial injustice uh, in Winnebago County and in Rockford, Illinois uh, in 2021. So we're going to finish up this chapter. I think we just got about a couple of pages left in it. Okay. Uh, what is to be done? The nihilistic threat to black America is inseparable from a crisis in black leadership. This crisis is threefold. First, at the national level, The courageous yet problematic example of Jesse Jackson looms large. On the one hand, his presidential campaigns based on a progressive multiracial coalition were the major left liberal response to Reagan's conservative policies. For the first time since the last days of Martin Luther King Jr., with the grand exception of Harold Washington, the nearly de facto segregation in U.S. progressive politics was confronted and surmounted. On the other hand, Jackson's televisual style resists grassroots organizing and, most important, democratic accountability. His brilliance, energy, and and charisma sustain his public visibility, but at the expense of programmatic follow-through. We are approaching the moment in which this style exhausts its progressive potential. Other national non-electoral black leaders like Benjamin Hooks of the NAACP and John Jacobs of the National Urban League rightly highlight the traditional problems of racial discrimination, racial violence and slow racial progress. Yet their preoccupation with race, the mandate from their organizations, downplays the crucial class, environmental, patriarchal and homophobic detriments of black life changes, black life changes, excuse me. Black politicians, especially new victors like Mayor David Dinkins of New York City and Governor Douglas Wilder of Virginia, are participants in a larger, lethargic electoral system riddled with decreasing revenues, loss of public confidence, self-perpetuating mediocrity, and pervasive corruption. Like most American elected officials, few black politicians, excuse me, like most American elected officials, uh, few, hey, how you doing? Uh... Hey, what's up? How you doing? Uh, Thank you. Uh, Like most American elected officials, few black politicians can sidestep these seductive traps. For all of these reasons, black leadership at the national level tends to lack a moral vision that can organize not just the periodic, not just periodically energize subtle analyses that enlighten, not simply intermittently awaken and exemplary practices that uplift, not merely convey status that awes black people. Second, this relative failure, thank you. Second, this relative failure creates vacuums to be filled by bold and defiant black nationalist figures with even narrower visions, one note racial analyses, and sensationalist practices. Louis Farrakhan, the early Al Sharpton prior to 1991, 
and others vigorously attempt to be protest leaders in this myopic mode, a mode often, though not always, reeking of immoral xenophobia. This kind of black leadership is not only symptomatic of black alienation and desperation in a country more and more indifferent or hostile to the quality of life among black working and poor people, it, is, it also reinforces the fragmentation of U.S. progressive efforts that could reverse this deplorable plight. In this way, black nationalist, nationalist leaders often inadvertently contribute to the very impasse they are trying to overcome. Inadequate social attention and action to change the plight of America's invisible people, especially disadvantaged black people. Third, this crisis of black leadership contributes to political cynicism among black people. It encourages the idea that we cannot re really make a difference in changing our society. This cynicism, already promoted by the larger political culture, dampens the fire of engaged local activists who have made a difference. These activists are engaged in protracted grassroots organization and principal coalitions that bring power and pressure to bear on specific issues. And they are people who have little interest in being in the national limelight, such as the industrial areas foundation efforts of BUILD in Baltimore or Harlem initiatives in Manhattan. Without such activists, there can be no progressive politics, yet state, regional, and national networks are also required for an effective progressive politics. That is why locally based collective and especially multi-gendered models of black leadership are needed. These models must shun the idea of one black national leader. They also should put a premium on critical dialogue and democratic accountability in black organizations. The crisis in black leadership. Uh, hold on one second. That's a, a stopping point here. Yeah, let's go through. Let's finish this chapter up and then we'll reflect. The crisis in black leadership can be remedied only if we candidly confront its existence. We need national forums to reflect, discuss and plan how best to respond. It is neither a matter of a new messiah figure emerging nor of another organization appearing on the scene. Rather, it is a matter a matter of grasping the structural and institutional processes that have disfigured, deformed and devastated black America such that the resources for nurturing collective and critical consciousness, moral commitment and courageous engagement are vastly underdeveloped. We need serious strategic and tactical thinking about how to create new models of leadership and force the kind of persons to actualize these models. These models must not only question our silent assumptions about black leadership, such as the notion that black leaders are always middle class, but must also force us to integrate iconic figures of the past, but must also force us to interrogate iconic figures of the past. Excuse me. This includes questioning King's sexism and homophobia and the relatively undemocratic character of his organization and examining Malcolm's silence on the vicious role of priestly versions of Islam in the modern world. But one point is beyond dispute. The time is passed for black political and intellectual leaders to pose as the voice for black America. Gone are the days when black political leaders jockey for the label, quote, president of black America, end quote, or when black intellectuals pose as the, quote, writers of black America, end quote. The days of brokering for the black turf of posing as the head Negro in charge, H&IC, are over. 
To be a serious black leader is to be a race transcending prophet who critiques the powers that be, including the black component of the establishment, and who puts forward a vision of moral regeneration and political insurgency for the purpose of fundamental social change for all who suffer from socially induced misery. For the moment, we reflect and regroup with the vow that the 1990s will make the 1960s look like a tea party. And then that brings us to the end of chapter three, uh, the crisis of black leadership. And brings us to the beginning of chapter four, demystifying the new black conservatism. And I want to reflect on a very, uh, first thing I want to reflect on in the crisis of black leadership chapter that we just read through is uh, this passage here. For all of these reasons, black leadership at the national level tends to lack a moral vision that can organize, subtle analyses that enlighten, and exemplary practices that uplift black people. Uh, I think that that is something that I personally have kept at those three specific needs I've kept at the forefront of, uh, of, of my involvement in the May 30th Alliance and my involvement in the struggle to end police terrorism, mass incarceration and racial injustice. Uh, one of the things I've also kept at the forefront uh, in my involvement is that understanding that black people are not a monolith, that black people uh, do not 100 percent agree with anything, that black people do not have 100 uh, percent the same experiences uh, in, in any in any aspect. There's multiple uh, vantage points and perspectives and perspectives and spectrums of the existence of of black people in this uh, society, in this country. And so I, I've never tried to be the voice of black America or the voice of black Rockford or the voice of of anything. But I do think think that we need voices. We need uh, people from all of these different uh, walks of, of black life. We need black women. We need black members of the LGBTQI plus community. We need uh, black men. We need uh, young black people, middle aged black people, all, uh, elderly black people. We need black people in a uh, working class and uh, low, lower class and middle class. Uh, we need uh, black people from uh, upper class. We need all of these different voices uh, to for us to be able to uh, fully and genuinely examine what black existence in this country and this society is right now and to give voice to those uh, different experiences. And I think that when we get to that place, when we are no longer dealing with one person or two people or one group or one organization uh, portraying themselves as the voice or the person or the organization of black America, we get to a place of 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 painting the full picture and learning the full uh, spectrum of what it means to be black uh, in America, what it means to be black specifically in Rockford. And uh, one of the things that I believe has happened here is that uh, the powers that be these institutional, uh, these institutions uh, th thrive off the concept of it being just one black leader or one black organization or one black agenda or, or just one set of black people that they feel have power or that has a platform because then uh, they can, they can disguise as if uh, they are doing things for black people by just talking to this or, or, or engaging with this one person uh, or uh, taking a picture with this one person or going to this one person's event or this one organization's event as opposed to it being uh, multiple organizations, multiple people, multiple individuals uh, who are uh, quote unquote leaders. 
uh, and again, I use quote unquote because I don't think that what black people need in, in Rockford or in America in this society right now with, excuse me, is necessarily leaders, but people who are willing to lead. Uh, and also, uh, part because I believe part of leading at times and being a good leader at times is knowing when to follow and, and, and when, uh, when to be a good follower. Uh, and so what the institutions and the powers that be don't want is is to help to be held accountable to all of the black society be held accountable by black working class people by be held accountable by black uh uh, uh poor people be held accountable uh by uh black uh, middle-aged people black middle-aged women black uh young men uh because then they have to uh, uh then they can't just uh then they can't just say, you know, I'm for social justice or I'm against racism. They have to start to uh, examine uh, the specificities that each uh, collect all these different collectives of black people. Uh, the specificity to the issues that all of these different collectives of black people deal with here. And so I think that when we start getting into the place of it, uh, of us not being seen as a monolith, uh, of us of us not organizing in a monolithic way, uh, it's when we begin to uh, take back some of that power. So that's some of my views on uh, black leadership. I also uh, I also when uh, uh, Cornell West speaks about uh, transcending race. Uh, again, this is something that he spoke about in the previous chapter, but I, I also agree that we need the type of black leadership that does transcend race. So that way uh, the the job is being done of communicating and articulating to uh, people who are not black, uh, indigenous people, uh, uh, Latinos, Latinas, Hispanics, uh, uh, Middle Eastern uh, folks, all of these different folks, uh, Asian folks, all of these different folks uh, that the, the black liberation struggle and the uh, the things that are good for black people or that will be good for the black masses will also be good for the masses of all people of color, for indigenous people and uh, for uh, Hispanic folks and, and Asian folks and Middle Eastern folks. And uh, we can't allow ourselves to be divided and conquer and allow for divisive tactics to keep us alienated from our allies and from our comrades. Uh, but I also think that we have to do the job of making sure that uh, the, these, this movement building and the struggling that we do is inherently uh, still steeped in uh, in acknowledging race and acknowledging how that social construct uh, uh, permeates the society now, uh, but also uh, acknowledging how we have to see past that social construct and see into the humanity in each other. Uh, and, you know, that is a very difficult thing to do. It's a lot easier said than done. OK, let's move on to the next chapter. Chapter four, demystifying the new black conservatism. It is, indeed, one of the basic moral blind spots of American conservatism that its intellectual and leadership energy have never been focused in a proactive way on America's racial caste legacy. This represents a fundamental moral crisis of modern American conservatism. American conservatives typically ignore the authoritarian and violent racial caste practices and values arrayed against black Americans in southern states where the vast majority of blacks live. On the other hand, American conservatives have, throughout this century, often embraced freedom movements elsewhere in the world, in Europe, Latin America, East Asia, but always firmly resisting a proactive embrace of the black American civil rights movement as a bona fide freedom movement fully worthy of their support. So it is in the shadow of this dismal record of mainstream American conservatism vis-a-vis -vis black Americans' long and arduous quest for equality of status that new black conservatives have emerged. Martin Kilson, quote, Anatomy of Black Conservatism, end quote. 
1992. The publication of Thomas Sowell's Race and Economics in 1975 marked the rise of a novel phenomenon in the United States, a visible and aggressive black intellectual conservative assault on traditional black liberal ideas. The, the promotion of conservative perspectives is not new in African-American history. The preeminent black conservatives of this century, George S. Schuller, published a witty and an acerbic column in the influential black newspaper, the Pittsburgh Courier, for decades. And his book, Black and Conservative, is a minor classic in African-American letters. Similarly, the reactionary essays, some of which appeared in Reader's Digest, and Republican Party allegiance of the most renowned African-American woman of letters, Zora Neale Hurston, are often overlooked by her contemporary feminists and womanist followers. Yet Sowell's book still signifies something new, a bid for conservative hegemony in black political and intellectual leadership in the post-civil rights era. This bid, as yet, has been highly unsuccessful, though it has generated much attention from the American media, whose interest is most clearly evident in the hoopla surrounding the recent works of Shelby Steele, Stephen Carter, and Stanley Crouch. The new black conservatism is a response to the crisis of liberalism in Afro-America. This crisis, exemplified partly by the rise of Reaganism and the collapse of left politics, has created an intellectual space that conservative voices of various colors now occupy. In this context, the writings of my friend... Uh, okay, I got you. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, there, matter of fact. Two o'clock. See you at two. Uh, one second. Uh, see now. Okay, my fault. Sorry about that, y'all. I lost my space. In this context, the writings of my friend and fellow Christian. Wait, hold on one second. My fault. This crisis, exemplified partly by the rise of Reaganism and the collapse of left politics, has created an intellectual space that conservative voices of various colors now occupy. In this context, the writings of my friend and fellow Christian Glenn Lowry warrant attention in that he attempts to distance himself from mainstream conservatism while targeting his critiques at black liberalism. That is, he is a neoconservative who wants to dislodge traditional liberalism among black Americans. In his forthcoming book, Free at Last, he puts forward three basic charges against black liberal thinkers. First, he holds that black liberals adhere to a victim status conception of black people that results in blaming all personal failings of black people on white racism. Second, he claims that black liberals harbor a debilitating loyalty to the race that binds them to the pathological and dysfunctional aspects of black behavior. Third, Lowry argues that black liberals trunk truncate intellectual discourse regarding the plight of poor black people by censoring critical perspectives which air the quote dirty linen end quote a black community that is they dub neoconservatives like lowry as quote uncle times end quote and thereby fail to take his views seriously in an intellectual manner lowry's charges are noteworthy in that the hegemony of black liberalism especially among black academic and political elites does impose restraints on the quality and scope of black intellectual exchange furthermore the more vulgar forms of black liberalism for example extreme environmentalism tend to downplay or ignore the personal responsibility of black people regarding their behavior toward one another and others unfortunately and ironically 
Lowry deploys the very rhetorical strategies he denounces in his liberal adversaries. For example, he casts black conservatives and neoconservatives like himself as victims. Victims whose own failings to gain a fair hearing and broad following in Afro-America, he attributes to a black liberal conspiracy to discredit them in an ad hominem manner. Yet surely the black community is not so gullible, manipulable, and downright callous. It may simply be that the real merits of the case put forward by the new black conservatives are unconvincing and unpersuasive. In addition, Lowry's rejection of blind loyalty to the race is laudable, yet he replaces it with a similarly blind loyalty to the nation. In fact, his major criticism of black liberals and left liberals is that they put the black community out of step with present-day conservative America because they adopt an excessively adversarial stance to the rest of the country. This criticism amounts not to a deepening and enriching of black intellectual exchange, but rather to a defense of new kinds of restrictions in the name of a neo-nationalism already rampant in America, a neo-nationalism that smothers and suffocates the larger American intellectual scene. In this way, Lowry's neoconservatism enacts the very, quote, discourse truncation, end quote, he claims to be opposing in his foes. His frequent characterizations of left liberal views as, quote, anachronistic, end quote, and discredited, end quote, idiosynchronatic, end quote, without putting forth arguments to defend such claims, exemplify this, quote, discourse truncation, end quote. Lowry's halfway house position between the black conservatism of Thomas Sowell and traditional black liberalism is simple is symptomatic of the crisis of purpose and direction among African-American political and intellectual elites. Three fundamental processes in American society and culture since 1973 set the context for grasping this crisis. The eclipse of U.S. economic predominance in the world, the structural transformation of the American economy, and the moral breakdown of communities throughout the country, especially among the black working poor and very poor. The symbolic event in the decline of American economic hegemony was the oil crisis, which resulted principally from the solidarity of the OPEC nations. Increasing economic competition from Japan, West Germany, and other nations ended an era of unquestioned U.S. economic power. The resultant slump in the American economy undermined the Keynesian foundation of post-war American liberalism. That is, economic growth accompanied by state regulation and intervention on behalf of disadvantaged citizens. The impact of the economic recession on African Americans was immense. Not surprisingly, it more deeply affected the black working poor and very poor than the expanding black middle class. Issues of sheer survival loom large for the former, while the latter continued to seize opportunities in education, business, and politics. Most middle class blacks consistently supported the emergent black political class, the black officials elected at the national, state and local levels, primarily to ensure black upward social mobility. But a few began to feel uncomfortable about how their white middle class peers viewed them. Mobility by means of affirmative action breeds tenuous self-respect and questionable peer acceptance for middle class blacks. The new black conservatives voiced these feelings in the forms of attacks on affirmative action programs, despite the fact that they had achieved their position by means of such programs. Give me one second. Okay. The importance of this quest for middle class respectability based on merit rather than politics cannot be overestimated in the new black conservatism. 
The need of black conservatives to gain the respect of their white peers deeply shapes certain elements of their conservatism. In this regard, they simply want what most people want to be judged by their quality of their skills, not the color of their skin. But the black conservatives overlooked the fact that affirmative action policies were political responses to the pervasive refusal of most white Americans to judge black Americans on that basis. Okay, and then let's take a moment there. We done read through, we've read through about two pages in this new chapter of demystifying the new black conservatism. And my fault, I had to take a drink, take a drink of this coffee real quick. Uh, I think the first thing that stands out to me in the reading of the new black conservatism chapter is the critiques of of black liberalism, the critiques uh, that were uh, put forward by a conservative of the of what of the liberal ideology in black America. Uh, I want to go back to. OK, let's read through some of them. Mm. First, he holds that black liberals adhere to a victim status conception of black people that results in blaming all personal failings of black people on white racism. Now, uh, I think that there is some validity in that uh, in that statement, but I think that it has to be taken with a grain of salt because uh, it is. It is a beyond a reasonable it is a factual statement that this country was created on racism and white supremacy and the forms that that racism and white supremacy took uh was the genocide of the indigenous people of this land and the enslavement the chattel slavery of africans who were kidnapped and brought over to this land uh it also took the form of the colonizing of North and Central and South America. Uh, and so those things, those three specific things, the colonizing, the genocide, and the enslavement were things that were completely done to people of color. Uh, and then the, the form of government in the form of the economy that we have uh were created from from those things from those they built out from those roots and so capitalism the capitalism that exists currently in this country uh was created uh by exp the exploitation of people of color uh that and so at every turn that you look in american history america is not a the united states of america is not a country that's existed for thousands of years it is relative is a relative young country in comparison to the other countries that exist uh, throughout the globe, throughout the world. And so uh, we are still very close to the roots and to the beginnings of, of, of this country. And so uh, it is you can it is you, irrefutable that racism plays a part in every aspect of the society. Now, that does not mean that within that institutional racism that plays a part of the society, that individuals who make decisions within uh, within the society are absolved because of racism or uh, are uh, innocent or or should not be held accountable because of racism. But we must also we must always uh, anchor our conversations of of assessing guilt and responsibility and accountability to individuals with the faults and the flaws of the institutions uh, uh, that exist in our uh, country. And so, uh, yes, it would be uh, completely wrong to say that 
uh, everything. What up? What up? What up? It would be completely wrong to just say uh, cast every uh, wrong and every ill just on his face to racism. Every individual decision, individual action that people make uh, by itself just on racism. Uh, but once you assess individual accountability, we must do the job of assessing institutional accountability. And the fact of the matter remains that there is heavy institutional racism, heavy institutional misogyny, heavy institutional homophobia, heavy institutional transphobia, uh, uh, and a litany list of other things that exist within our society. Uh, and so... I just think that that's something that has to be uh, pointed out. And so there is, again, this, the, when we go to the second thing he's points out, second, he claims that black liberals harbor a debilitating loyalty to the race that binds them, that blinds them to the pathological and dysfunctional aspects of black behavior. Now, again, there that has to be taken with a grain of salt, because, yes, it would be incorrect for any of us to be blind to the responsibility that uh, not only individuals hold, but also the responsibility that we must uh, collectively hold on uh, the lack of progression that we have made in certain aspects of this society. Uh, we cannot just absolve uh, any community wholly or any area or any people or any family wholly uh, for missteps that they may have made in this society that has perpetuated violence in the black community that has perpetuated addiction in the black community that has perpetuated mental health issues in the black community that has perpetuated uh, misogyny and homophobia and transphobia in the black community that has perpetuated poverty in the black community uh, but what we must also do while uh, assessing uh, accountability and by uh, what we must also do while assessing accountability is still trace back the the ways institutionally and historically our communities and our families and our cities and our areas uh, have been negatively and disproportionately affected by racism in this society have been negatively and disproportionately affected uh, by the uh, capitalism that exists in this society by the imperialism that exists in this society uh, and so and by the miseducation by the uh, that has been done in this society uh, by the uh, unequitable access to uh, fair employment, by the unequitable access to uh, to fair housing conditions that have happened in this society. And so, yes, we do not just say that uh, anybody who lives in an area where violence takes place is completely absolved from their from taking part in that violence uh, because. They, the neighborhood was redlined or because they weren't uh, they were miseducated in the schools that they were in or because they didn't have access to employment. Uh, we don't just wholly absolve them because we understand that you still make individual choices. But what we must do while uh, holding that community accountable or people in that community accountable is measure out how that community has been affected by racism, how that community has been affected by mass incarceration, by police terrorism, by uh, by miseducation and all of these things. Uh and then third, Lowry argues that black liberals truncate intellectual discourse regarding the plight of poor black people by censoring critical perspectives which air the, quote, dirty linen or dirty laundry, end quote, of the black community. That is, they dub neoconservatives like Lowry as, quote, Uncle Tom's, end quote, and thereby fail to take his views seriously in an intellectual manner. Uh, now, again, this is something that has to be taken with a grain of salt because, yes, uh, 
I wholly believe that they are not. A, and this is not just a, a conservative or neoconservative or Leo liberal or neoliberal uh, point of view or aspect. Uh, but there are 100 percent Uncle Toms in the black community and coons in the black community and sellouts in the black community and, and people who uh, who fall into those categories. And I'm not going to get into uh, defining those specific categories right now. That's something that I, I do want to uh, maybe a live from Occupy City Hall podcast, a different podcast, a different day. And we do have a video on Facebook where I've sort of talked about these different categories and what I believe encompasses and defines these different categories. But that is not uh, solely a conservative thing. There are uh, liberals and Democrats who are more Uncle Toms than any conservatives are that are uh, do. Uh, there are uh, uh, businessmen, people who are entrepreneurs who are more Uncle Toms than any political uh, person in a political uh, spectrum or sphere is uh, because they want white proximity or because they want white acceptance or because they are willing to do things that are detrimental to the black community uh, to uh, be seen as part of mainstream American society. Uh, so that's not just strictly a, a conservative or neoconservative thing, uh, but also there is a, a dialogue or a conversation that has to happen uh, with everybody who are who is part of the black community. And so I think that you can call somebody or assess somebody and say that their actions are Uncle Tom like or they fall in the category of being an Uncle Tom or a sellout in or, or a coon and still have a uh, respectable, peaceable conversation and dialogue with this person explaining to them why you believe that. And now if this person can uh, respond to you with why with uh, why they are not those things and uh, can give a, 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 a better view of their uh can give a, a, a better perspective of their ideology and where they stand and their tactics and why they're doing certain things that they are doing, uh, then that's for the best. And then maybe we can adjust the, the title that has been assessed to this person. Uh, but with, but I don't think that means you just don't call it how you see it. But I think that we have to uh, be in a position of calling it how you see it, but being able to still talk to somebody, being able to still understand that sometimes you may be seeing it wrong. You may be calling it wrong. Uh, but then also uh, in, in the and that shouldn't be seen as some type of an attack. Uh, I think the same. So too many times we have these uh, we have these words uh, that people uh, have uh, put negative connotations to as opposed to putting the uh, uh, accurate connotations to as a and uh, everything is not necessarily a, a negative connotation or a positive connotation. Sometimes it, it just it is what it is. Uh, and, and so to me, that's that's how uh, the. The terminology Uncle Tom fits in. I don't think that somebody being labeled as an Uncle Tom or called an Uncle Tom means that they do not have valid aspects or valid uh, uh, pieces of information to present to the black community. Uh, 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 Uncle Toms are part of the black community. House Negroes, sellouts, they are part of the black community. Uh, and, if to, and we do not need to push them further away but we need to try to bring them in uh and bringing them in means having discourse with them having dialogue with them so i do agree with the aspect of what he says of how it can be dangerous to just completely push out uh any perspective of uh, that somebody has of black existence in this society uh and so i think that uh i want to end this we're going to end this podcast right there and then we'll pick back up finishing this chapter uh demystifying the new black conservatism uh, and I think that this is a very important chapter uh, for us to go through because uh, it's going to take black conservatives and black liberals for us to get us to get us out of the uh, black hell that uh, a lot of our 
the black masses exist in. It's not going to just we didn't only get into this place from just white liberals or white conservatives. We got in this place from from we didn't just get in this place only from white liberal thinking or only from white conservative thinking. We got into this place from both white liberal and white conservative thinking and some black liberal and black conservative thinking as well. And so we are going to need all those same types of thinking and train of thoughts working in the opposite manner to absolve, address these things and then absolve us of these things. Uh, and so. I want to ask people to please share this uh, podcast episode on whatever platform you're listening to it on, whether that's Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, or any other uh, Pocket Cast or any of those other uh, wonderful uh, apps that allow you to listen to the May 30th Alliance Podcast Network. I want to encourage people to go back and listen to previous episodes of Rockford Reading Daily. If you haven't listened to when we read Have Black Lives Ever Mattered by Mamiya Abu-Jamal, please go back and listen to that. If you haven't listened to some of the previous readings of Race Matters by Cornell West, please go and listen to that. And if by the time this comes out, you find yourself in a place where there are future readings, please go and listen to that. I think my batteries is giving out on this uh, mic, so we're going to end this podcast. Uh, We outside.